using philosophy to understand our city and to change it. This is Phi on New York, the podcast of the Gotham Philosophical Society, with your host, Joe Beal. Bradley Tusk wants to fix our politics, and after working for then-mayor of Philadelphia and future governor of Pennsylvania, Ed Randell, being a senior advisor to New York City Parks Commissioner Henry Stern, communications director for Senator Chuck Schumer, special advisor to Mayor Michael Bloomberg, and eventually campaign manager for Bloomberg's third term, while as well serving a four-year stint as a very hands-on deputy governor of Illinois, you would think he would have some sense of how politics works, or more precisely, why it doesn't. But it was from working as a political strategist for tech startups facing daunting regulatory challenges, among them FanDuel, Lemonade, Handy, Ease, and most notably and consequentially Uber, that he came to the conclusion that the solution to our political dysfunction is already in the palm of our hands. Mobile voting through our phones would, Tusk believes, increase voter turnout and so force politicians to become responsive to a broader range of the electorate and thereby decrease the polarization and posturing that currently leaves so many citizens frustrated and disaffected. I spoke to Bradley about this about what kind of mayor he believes New York City needs and why he thought Andrew Yang fit that mold, about what he thinks makes for good and bad regulations, and what makes New York and New Yorkers unique. Bradley has been leaving his mark on New York City political life for over 20 years and will continue to do so. I think it is therefore incumbent on us to hear about his philosophy of the city. I enjoyed speaking with him, and I hope you find the conversation as worthwhile as I did. Bradley Tusk, welcome to Fi on New York. Yeah, thanks for having me, Joe. This is uh, it's it's. I've never thought I'd be asked to be on a philosophy podcast, so I'm I'm honored uh, to be here. I really appreciate uh, you're taking the time uh, to do this. I think that uh, we could have a um, a very interesting and fruitful uh, conversation. Plato famously said that unless philosophers rule as kings or those now called kings and chiefs genuinely and adequately philosophize and political power and philosophy coincide, there will be no rest from ills for the cities. Now, (laughs) most people don't take the idea of philosopher king seriously nowadays, um, and and for a variety of reasons, some of them probably uh, pretty good. Um, One reason would be to not think that philosophers really have access uh, to normative truths, truths about how we ought to live, how a society uh, really ought to be. And one reason why philosophers don't have access to it because, is because those truths don't actually exist. They're not out there. We are making our way as you know, on our own. You know, it's just us and, and we have to, to speak with each other. We have to uh, um, try things, reflect on them and try to move forward as systematically, as critically engaged as possible. Um, and that's why I try to use philosophy to look at the New York. And I think that we can make some progress here. Sure. Um, you, with your experience, um, experience 
working for the mayor, Mike Bloomberg. You have been a lieutenant governor. Um, you now work uh, for various organizations trying to disrupt uh, the po politics as usual, uh, try to work to rethink regulations, the norms that govern much of our economic activity. So I, I think that you would have quite a few things to talk about here and, and to give us some things to think about. Cool. So to begin, you know, and especially if you think that there are no universal truths, but it's something that we do, we work out for ourselves, then different people at different times and different places can work out different rules. And there isn't one size fits all. So we're here in New York. We want to think about how New York works and how New York might work better. Let's begin with your thoughts about what is New York? What makes this city the city that it is and not some other city? You've had experience in, in different places, um, but what what is New York to you and makes it the particular peculiar place that it is? Yeah, and I, I think it's okay. I'm going to answer the question in two ways, which is one, directly, but then two, something I think about a lot, which is what should be the underlying philosophy girding how a city functions and is run and works? Because to me, that's a really key debate that we're having, even if people don't recognize it's a philosophical debate, that it's what it actually is. So, so the, the first part is, look, I, I have lived in a couple of different cities. and I've been to a lot of cities all over the world. And like most New Yorkers, I would say, you know, nothing really compares to, to New York. And, and I think that there is this spirit of trying something new, trying to make it, wanting to be the absolute best in whatever your field or profession is, being willing to sacrifice a lot. I mean, even really rich people um, who, who live in New York still, you know, have to make sacrifices in order to choose to be here, right? Whether it's the size of your home or the, you know, quality of life issues, a homeless person outside your block or whatever it is, no one lives here without making a series of sacrifices to do so. And they do it, um, one, because uh, it, it feels unique to them. But two, in, in some ways, you know, when, when someone moves to New York and they say to me, well, when am I a New Yorker? I say, when you can't imagine living anywhere else, <laughs> That's when you're a New Yorker, right? And when you're willing to put up all of the shit that you put up with, which, by the way, we all complain about all the time. That's also an inherent right of being a New Yorker is complaining about the city. But um, but there's this thing where you almost say to yourself, and it, it's intangible in a way, so it's hard to capture it, you know, to articulate it, but it's there's this city and it has this weird, unique vibe that fits with me and my personality. And I get it and it gets me. And it's imperfect, and I'm imperfect, but being here reflects who I am better than anywhere else I could be. And I think that that, to me, is, is what New York is. Now, to be clear, there are two New Yorks, right? There's a New York for people who come here from different countries, different cities, different, different parts of the world, because they are attracted to everything I just outlined. There are also people who live here because they were born here. And this is just this is where they are, and they may not even have the mobility to go somewhere else. So that kind of that that kind of kindred weird spirit, um, I'm not sure if it exists for all 8.8 million New York City residents, but I, I do think it exists for probably everyone who wasn't born. 
Yeah, that actually raises kind of a, an interesting, somewhat metaphysical question about you know what makes a New Yorker a New Yorker. Um, you know, and and this point about these two kind of different groups. You know, people. You know, there are some who say, "Look, you're a New Yorker if you're born and bred here." Um, and everyone else is an outsider, you know, who, you know, who's coming. Um, but there is something to this vibe, to this kind of essence or soul, in a sense, of the city that is driven by the people who are coming to be some, you know, in a sense, you said to, this is where I can be who I am. But in some sense, it seems like who I can become something else. You know, that, or, you know, you know, you're true, truly becoming who you might be. Um, and, you know, that, you know, people who simply just are living here because, well, you know, don't know anything else. Are they, do they contribute to that essence? Now, yeah, again, well, maybe they do in the sense of the reason why you could become whatever you want to become in New York, if you have the skill and luck and everything else to achieve it is there's a level of either tolerance or indifference or both here that I think is unprecedented in terms of everyone's kind of like you be you and you do you. And if that is, you know, does not comport with normal societal norms in, in most ways, that's okay. Right. As long as you're hurting somebody else, we can have the subway and someone can look however they want. And I really don't care. Right. It makes you happy. Great. Um, and so I think if you share that level of tolerance uh, um, for I'm okay with people being whatever they need to be, maybe that's the, the gating condition necessary for them people to be able to come here and be whoever it is that they both want to be and, and need to be. And so maybe if you have that level of tolerance slash indifference, that's what makes you a Yeah, uh, there's a philosopher, uh, Iris Marion Young, who said that uh, the idea of a city is the being together of strangers. And not only the 8.8 million, there's so many, um, but New York City seems to bring these strangers together um, in ways that, like you said, in, in certainly tolerates and in some, some ways encourages the strangeness. You know, so we are exposed to unique individuals uh, in a way that in many other places you just wouldn't be. It's much more homogenous, the, the nature of the society, whereas here, um, you know, all of that difference um, kind of generates, um, uh, it generates an energy and an excitement and a creativity that uh, doesn't seem to be uh, duplicated elsewhere. You um, are... I believe you are opening a bookstore and you are you have a book prize or or in the works a book prize called yeah, the Gotham yeah. Book Prize. Could you yeah. speak why? Yeah, sure. <laughs> so uh the, the book prize came about uh Howard Wolfson, a friend of mine and I, had sort of noted a couple of years ago that we were surprised that there wasn't uh, an award given to the best book, you know, either about or set in New York City every single year. And just thought there should be, but you know, all day you think there ought to be X, and you don't, you don't change the course of your day. But then when the pandemic hit, uh, our feeling was um, for the rest for, for New Yorkers, our New York is very tangible. It's the streets, it's the subways, it's the schools, it's the parks. But New York is maybe the one city 
in the world that pretty much the entire global population is aware of, right? And so if you, if you back out the 8.8 million people who live here, there's still another 7.6 billion people uh, in other places. And most of them have heard of New York City, right? And they have a conception of it. And their conception of New York City is really driven by uh, media. It's driven by movies, TV shows, books, music, podcasts. And in a way, even if the very tangible New York that you and I live in is suffering, and I think that um, you know the city has been suffering during COVID, and, and in some ways, you know, it will take a while to recover from it. As long as the mystique of New York lives on in books, in movies, in music, whatever it is, that's part of that siren song that attracts those people from everywhere, kind of the best and the brightest and the weirdest and everything else who want to come here and are willing to make the sacrifices that it takes to both get here and stay here and succeed here. Um, and so as long as that mystique exists, it seems to me that New York always at least has a fighting chance because as long as we're always attracting the kind of people who say, I need to be here no matter what, um, you know, we've always got a, a talent base to work from. And so to me, um, you know, books is one place where it really, you know, a great book about New York capture the city in a way that almost nothing else can. And so our thought was just if we could encourage writers to want to continue writing about New York, setting books in New York, um, and it could be fiction or nonfiction, um, then, you know, that was a way to help contribute or help ensure that that mystique continues. And so it's a pretty modest prize. We give $50,000 a year, uh, each year to the, the best books set in New York City. We've got a jury of uh, writers, historians, academics, uh, city different experts in, in, in city kind of governance and operations. Um, last year, they selected uh, the book Deacon King Kong by James McBride um, as the winner. Uh, and uh, we are now, if you go to GothamBookPrize.org, we're taking submissions for for the 2022 pro, well, 2021 prize, which will be awarded the spring of 2022. Um, and so it's just something that we're doing every single year. And then the bookstore uh, is related in the sense that I, I, I love books. Uh, I've written one book. I, I hope I can write more. Um, and I, I'd always thought, hey, it'd be fun to own a bookstore someday. And then during the pandemic, I had that thought again. And then another thought, which was like, Okay, Bradley, you're a really lucky guy. You've made a lot of money as a venture capitalist. You can have a bookstore. And by the way, you can have one right now. Like, there's no reason <laughs> you have to wait till you're 70 or something like that to, to do that. Um, and by the way, this would be a good time to invest in the city. Maybe not financially, but, you know, a city that's hurting, if you can create, and I don't think we're going to have more than 15 people working there, but if I can create 15 really good jobs where we're paying, you know, good wages and providing benefits and, and also letting people work in a thing that they love because a, a great bookstore is filled with people who work there who know the books and love the books. Um, that's a nice thing to do for the city. And I am lucky to be in a position where I can afford to open a bookstore, pay the cost it takes to do that, lose money on it, um, but but do something nice for the city. So we have uh, leased a space. It's on Orchard Street, uh, 180 Orchard between Houston and Stanton. Um, we are starting construction hopefully next week, although construction deadlines are a little a little tenuous, as I've learned. Um, my hope is to open in November. We may not make that, but but here's what we're trying to build. So it's a little more than a bookstore. It, it, it's an indie bookstore. Um, it is also a podcast studio that will be free for anybody to use. 
Uh, I think it's the only podcast studio I'm aware of where you can just go online, make a reservation, walk in, record your podcast. You know, we can send you the link or whatever it is, and you can you can put it up on on Apple or Spotify or whatever you want. Um, and it will be an event space. We've got amphitheater seating for about eighty, um, and, and a space for different types of events. It could be related to books, but it could just be community events or artistic performances or whatever it is, um, and a cafe. So, um, so we are you know working all that right now. Like I said, it, and the name is cool too, by the way. Um, it's called P and T Knitwear, and the reason why is my family came to this country in the 1950s uh, after World War II. Uh, my father and grandparents lived in uh, U.S.-run refugee camps in Germany. Uh, and then finally, there was a cousin in Brooklyn who sponsored them to, to come to the U.S. And my grandfather, like a lot of, of Jews of that generation, uh, you know, entered the garment business when he got here because that was something that you could do and, and make a living in. And he had his first store called P&T Knitwear. P was his partner, Mike Pudlow, and T was Tusk or Hyman Tusk. And, you know, there's their shelves, my dad told me, were basically just empty boxes uh, designed to look like there was stuff there and a handful of sweaters. Um, but it turns out that store was on Orchard Street. Um, not, not the same cross streets as, as my store, but, but close enough. And so kind of to, to recognize that and the neighborhood that we're in and to kind of honor, honor that legacy, uh, I stole the name and uh, what would we call P&T? That's a great, great story. And best of luck with it as someone uh, you know, as a philosopher who's got plenty of books, uh, uh, my worldly goods, as my wife likes to say, um, I welcome another bookstore, particularly an indie bookstore. I, I went to graduate school um, here in the city and uh, through through the late 80s, the 90s, uh, into the early, you know, the audience watched bookstore after bookstore close. Yeah. You know, it just uh, a completely transformed uh, kind of literary landscape. Um, so I definitely, I'm, I'm all for uh, a bookstore and it sounds like an amazing space. Um, so. I, I hope so. Yeah, we're really <clears throat> excited about it. Look, it, it is a shame inherently that it takes someone like me who made a bunch of money doing something else to then be the person, the right kind of person to own a bookstore, basically meaning I'll lose money and I'm okay with that. Um, but nonetheless, I, I would, if, if other people who have made some money are listening to this and, and you've always, you love books, I think opening a bookstore is a great thing to do. Uh, you um, backed Andrew Yang for yep. uh, in the mayoral race. And an interesting thing that you I heard you say on your podcast, Firewall Podcast, so a plug, yeah, I, I, I try to listen to it, yep. <laughs> um, was uh, you in, in kind of you gave like a, a like a mini rationale for his candidacy um, was that you would think that he would be more like Mike Bloomberg in that it would be much more kind of a managerial um, mayoralty. And the way you, I think you put it was that um, he wouldn't see and that the, the sort of mayor you think this city ideally needs would not see the city in ideological terms, but that it is a place where you really need to provide a template where people feel safe, people feel secure. Um, uh, tourists want to come, businesses want to start here, uh, existing businesses want to stay here. Um, if you can create that, everything else in a sense will take care of itself. That's a really good way to say it. Yeah. Could you, 
I yeah. guess elaborate on yeah, that. Yeah, sure. So, so this, and this actually gets something that, that I, I brought up earlier, but didn't 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 speak to it, which is um, mayoral elections in many ways are a philosophical debate on, especially sure. right now, what you believe a city city governance and government should be. Absolutely. Right. If you take Bloomberg and De Blasio, the the current mayor and the previous mayor, um, as just the two extremes in some ways, um, it, it's easier to think about it, which is. So Mike Bloomberg believed that his job was to create, like you said, a template, create a, a city that feels safe um, and is open for business and is and people want to live here and stay here and not move to the suburbs and tourists want to come here and it has good schools and the streets are clean and the parks are nice. And if you can provide that template, um, the people will do the rest. People will come here and come up with great ideas, great art, great businesses, great whatever, great food, um, you know, great, great intellectual achievements. And the job of the city is to create an environment that's welcoming for them that they want to be, right? Bill de Blasio, and I would argue, I think, um, and let, we, let's put aside the fact that his mayoralty was a failed mayoralty, just from an ideological standpoint, de Blasio would say the role of city government is to reduce inequality in society. Um, and therefore, we should use the resources of city government um, to redistribute resources from point A to point B. And, you know, it's just it's a philosophically very different approach to it. Right. De Blasio has not really worried that much about crime, has not worried that much about homelessness or quality of life or economic development. For him, it's really been about uh, redistribution of resources um, coming through taxation and coming through spending. And look, I, I don't think he's right, but it's a it's a point of view. And for those who kind of align with the, the Democratic Socialists of America and kind of the AOC, Bernie Sanders wing of the Democratic Party, that is your view. If you're voting for it, that's what you're voting for, which is the mechanism of city government should be used to very aggressively root out and attack inequality, whereas a, a Bloombergite would say the mechanism of city government should be to create a template it allows people to be here and succeed here. Um, and that success is what breeds opportunity um, for people to have jobs uh, and have housing and, and everything else. And so there, there are two very different views of city government. I, I strongly share the, the Bloombergian view of it um, in some ways, simply because having spent you know a, a good chunk of my career in government, um, including when, as you mentioned, I was the deputy governor of the state of Illinois and really ran the state for four years. I just believe that there are things that government does well and things it doesn't do well, and there are clear limitations to what government can achieve. And I think we've got to work within those limitations rather than just deciding that government can kind of do anything just, just because you want it to. So then if you accept my argument that the Bloombergian approach to philosophy to government is right, then when I was trying to select a mayoral candidate to support uh, in the election this year, what I really looked for was, okay, What's the thing that Mike Bloomberg did best and who can best emulate that? And, and I was Mike's campaign manager um, and worked for him at City Hall. And if, if you ask me, if let's say you made a list of the 250 best things that happened in Mike's 12 years as mayor. I don't know that Mike actually thought of any of those things. What Mike did when he said, I am going to hire the most talented people I can get. And I'm going to do it without any regards to politics at all. And I'm going to make them hire the most talented people they can get with no regard to politics at all. And if I can bring thousands of talented people who normally wouldn't work in city government into the system, 
And then I can give them the freedom to come up with big ideas and try them and even fail. And that could be okay, right? Um, they're going to come up with some really good ideas and they're going to do some really interesting things. And, I, and, and, and that's what happened, right? And to me, uh, the reason why Yang was, was the best candidate was uh, he had that worldview, number one. Number two, uh, because he's a sort of national dynamic figure, my view is we'd be, we would be able to attract talent from all over the country and all over the world, um, much in the way that Mike did. Now, Mike was able to do it more with his pocketbook, whereas Andrew would have been doing it more with his personality. But I felt like our ability to attract talent would have been greater than it would be for any other mayor. And because Andrew is not of the political system in New York City at all, we'd be coming in with a completely clean slate, which means he could just hire the absolute best talent for every single position without worrying about what some union wants or what some party boss wants or what some editorial board wants or anything else. Um, Because one one upside of running for office without institutional support is if you win, you don't owe anybody anything. And so um, to me, Yang embodied that better than any other candidate. uh, And that's why I supported him. And it was an interesting election in that, you know, we were ahead for the first part of the campaign and then down uh, for the second part of the campaign. And it's really the zeitgeist of the race itself shifted. So when we started, we were still in the throes of COVID. It turns out we're back there again now. Um, and, and and the in my view, the, the winner would be the person who could present the best plan for recovery, the person who presented the most optimism, the most ideas, the most enthusiasm. Here's how we lead, lead our city out of this. About halfway through the campaign, um, the vaccine became readily available, which is a good thing. Um, and then once people started taking the vaccine, their concern about COVID, obviously, as did mine, plummeted because you felt safe. Uh, and, and then at the same time, the city was struck by a really significant increase in crime and not just not just crime, but but violence. Um, and, and, you know, there's that saying, if it bleeds, it leads. Um, once the city, if the city feels safe, people don't really think about law enforcement and crime. But, but if it feels unsafe, then it's the only thing they think about. Then it becomes the predominant issue. Uh, far more than anything else. Um, and Eric Adams, who won the election, uh, had been a police officer for 22 years. And you can't out-cop Eric Adams, right? And uh, the election went from who can take us out of COVID to who can keep us from getting shot. Uh, and Eric became the right choice for a lot of voters in that way. And he won. And my hope is, and I've had conversations with Eric about this, um, that he kind of still sees the underlying role of government and the mayor in a similar way to how Andrew does and how Mike does. Um, and, and I think he does. And, and we'll see the real test in some ways will be for the next six months before he takes office as he appoints his team. Who is he appointing? If it's if it's a bunch of political hacks and elected officials and former legislators and all that, uh, that, that that's a bad sign. Um, if it's independent, talented people who are the best at what they do, then I think that's a really good sign. So, you know, the jury's out, but I'm, I'm hopeful. So let me, uh, you know, I'm not interested in having, you know, any debate or conversation so much about who yeah, should sure. have won or any, uh, who, you know, it's the right, whether it's the right philosophy of governing. I want to, though, get put, get a little deeper into this philosophy of governing um, in this New York context, um, and I have actually another kind of much more abstract question, but um, 
as you said, I mean, Eric Adams, you know, might have appealed as well as being, well, he could be the person who could manage this city given its needs. The relative um, uh, um, success of Catherine Garcia, uh, her, her strength might well be best explained in terms of, you know, not particularly ideological. She also kind of seemed to exude some sort of managerial competence. Um, so that goes kind of in the favor of like this, this kind of this approach you're talking about. But what do you, you know, how do you um, think about the fact that though Bloomberg won three elections, and so his approach had its adherence. Um, what we got after him was this kind of quite distinct philosophical approach. You know, wh- why did the city? You know, why yeah. you know the zeitgeist of the city yeah, at that I, time? I, you know. Absolutely. So, so look, I, I think there's there's two two answers to that. One is specific to Mike, and and one is a kind of broader political issue that faces everywhere in this country and maybe every democracy to a certain extent. So the, the specific is, you know, by the time that, that we ran for the third term, Mike wasn't even a member of a political party anymore. He was an independent, right? And, and for the same reason, in some ways, that he was so successful at running the city because he didn't really worry about local politics and power brokers and all of that and really just kind of did what he thought was right. Um, that's a really good strategy for running the place day to day when you're there. But what we didn't do was create any sort of lasting political infrastructure to survive him. So as a result, the minute that the man and his abilities and his resources left, it was just gone, right? And it wasn't like we built any sort of machine or operation to live beyond Mike. So it wasn't, you know, we couldn't then run the next Bloombergian candidate for mayor in 2013 and so on or 25 city council candidates or whatever it is, um, because that's not what we focused on. We just focused on getting him into office and then running the city as, as best as we possibly could. So I, or that's a failure on our part or, or a choice, right? Because I think Mike wasn't unaware of this. He, he chose not to do it. Um, he wouldn't certainly wouldn't say he regrets it if you ask him, because I don't think he ever says he regrets anything. Um, whether he actually does or not, I, I'm not sure. Uh, but the, the broader part is this, which is, we have a city of 8.8 million people. Uh, Bill de Blasio won his primary in 2013 with 312,000 votes out of 693, I think, thousand cats total. So that's, you know, 693 out of 8.8 million is something like, I don't know, 8%, right? And then 300,000 of that 693, now you're down to about 4% of the city's population um, voted for Bill de Blasio, both in the 2013 primary. And then again in the uh, in the 2017 primary, and, and so part of the problem is turnout is so incredibly low that the the choice of mayor isn't necessarily reflective of, of the city of a whole as a whole at all, right? Whether by the way that's true when we won in the, in the Bloomberg stuff or when we lost with the anger, you know, I was involved in the Blasio election, but 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 in any of them, and, and we have this tremendous problem where you know. People complain about their leaders, their government, sort of the dysfunction of our democracy. Yet at the same time, they don't participate in it. And if you believe, as I do, that every policy output 
is the result of a political input. And, and Bloomberg happened to be an exception to that, but it's really just about the only exception I've ever seen in my career in government and politics. Um, if you believe that, that means that every politician is incentivized to do um, what gets them reelected. And if they know, because of gerrymandering, that the only election that really matters is the primary. And if turnout in their primary, and this is true whether you're a city council member or a state senator or a congressman, whatever, um, turnouts 10 to 15% typically, then what you're really solving for is how do I keep that 10 to 15% or in the case of de Blasio, those 300,000 voters, how do I keep them happy, right? And they tend to be the most ideological, the most partisan, or the most kind of reflective of particular special interests. Um, and as a result, we set up a system where all of the incentives are to govern for the few at the expense of the many. Um, and so the question is, what do you do about it? Right. So, so, uh, I know where I, this is going. Yeah. You're okay. If I talk about mobile voting, <laughs> I do want to talk, but actually, before you get into mobile voting, I actually want to get your thoughts on something else about this kind of managerial approach. So, and because yeah. you emphasize it as a strength, um, that you, um, you basically, you hire these experts who are going to be you know, who are going to run this agency, that agency, or what have you, um, they are not beholden to any constituencies. And so they're just going to, you know, kind of be, they're much more effective. What about the argument that, um, that this may not be the most democratic way of kind of running the city in the sense that, um, you know, if, if the candidate doesn't have specific policy proposals and say, look, I'm going to do this and then I'm going to do that. And here's my vision, what have you. If the vision is um, this much more, you know, the vision is competency um, and I will hire, you know, either because I can afford it or because of my personality, I will bring them in. I'll hire good people. Do the voters have enough information there to make a, an informed decision? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I don't think we suffer from a lack of information, especially in an era uh, where social media and websites and everything else, you know, it's probably far easier to learn more about any particular candidate right now than it's ever been in history, because you can go on your phone or your laptop and with a few clicks, um, everything is there. And because of that, the candidates are forced to provide vast, vastly more information than they ever have been in the past. Um, because there is this expectation. So I don't think it's an access to information problem. I think it is a access to voting problem, which kind of takes us back into to, to mobile voting, which is um, we get the government we vote for and deserve, right? And when only 10, 12% of us show up to vote in a primary, um, then, you know, basically most of us decided it really wasn't worth our time. You know, almost 90% of us said, you know what, screw it, I'm, I'm not going to, take the extra hour out of my day to go to the local school and, and wait in line and vote. Um, and as a result, you know, that's what you get, right? You get, you get someone who was able to effectively capture the, the interests and needs of 300,000 people or whatever the number is, even though the city is 8.8 million. And so it gets back to, I, I think the system is going to be as democratic as, as it is based on who chooses to participate in it. Right. So, if turnout in that primary were 50% instead of uh, 12% or 8% or whatever the number is, 
um, then I, I, you're going to get different outcomes and you're going to get a more validating choice either way, right? You know, the reason why these choices feel so insubstantial is because so few people bother to actually participate in the election in the first place. And so if I can take it back to mobile voting now, um, I've been spending a lot of my time and resources over the last couple of years trying to make it possible for people to vote in elections on their phone over the blockchain. Um, and the reason I've done that is um, I ran the campaigns to legalize Uber in New York and all over the U.S. in kind of the early part of the last decade. And the thing that that really struck me was millions of people, probably almost none of whom who show up to vote in a local municipal primary, were willing to in some way advocate politically on our behalf because they wanted to be able to use Uber. So they texted their city council member, they emailed, they tweeted. In some way, through their phone, they let it be known, I want this thing, right? And because they did that in such massive numbers, we won in every single jurisdiction in the U.S. So when that was happening at the time, I remember thinking, wow, if you could vote this way, it would potentially change everything because, you know, if you just believe these people are apathetic and they'll, they'll never bother, they wouldn't have just done this and they just did, right? So it's not that they won't participate. They won't participate if the level of inconvenience is too high, right? 90% of us at this point have a smartphone in our pockets. The question becomes, what if we could vote from that? Uh, technology is pretty nascent. But uh, in 2018, the Secretary of State of West Virginia, a guy named Mac Warner, uh, agreed to do a pilot program where voters from two West Virginia counties were able to vote um, on their phone over the blockchain uh, if they were deployed military. So Mac is a conservative Republican. But Mac uh, was in the military. All four of his kids serve in the military. And he was always very frustrated by the fact that the same people who are literally risking their lives to defend our right to vote often don't have their vote cast. They're ca counted because by the time it's cast and, and, and received, the election's long determined. Um, so he was looking for a solution to that specifically. He said, okay, I'll try it out for this. We did it. Um, uh, I was able to, I funded it through, through Touch the Land for the reason my foundation. Um, it worked. Uh, he expanded it to voters in 24 counties for the general election. It worked. Um, and since then, we have now conducted elections in 20 different jurisdictions across seven different states, where the people with disabilities or people uh, deployed military have been able to vote uh, on their phone over the blockchain. Um, and so we're working to expand that, both the technology and the right to do so um, nationally, so that my hope is by 2028, which is something of an arbitrary date, but just like I had to set some date in my head. Um, Everyone can vote in every election uh, on their phone. And I believe that if people can do that, we will get turnout up from 8%, 12%, 16% in primaries to 50, 60, 70%. And if we do that, then that 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 problem you spoke to before of is the approach democratic, I think is automatically answered and solved because yes, the majority of people participated in the way it is. So to me, you know, the 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 result is, is the answer. And the result we get is based on participation, and participation right now is unacceptable. Uh, and the way to fix that is is to have mobile voting that is secure, uh, but also is far more accessible. And so that's you know e even more so than the bookstore, the Gotham Book Prize, um, the the cause that is occupying uh, a lot of my time and a lot of my financial resources is, is mobile. So one of the um, the arguments that I think you have made explicitly, but it seemed to be a little bit more implicit here um, in this conversation <clears throat> around mobile voting is your thought that um, that the majority of the voters, if you had more voters 
um, by making it easier to vote, they would be less ideological. So you wouldn't have as much kind of extreme candidates. Um, Has your experience, because so you said you've had some success in these different jurisdictions. Have you been able, have you been tracking? Have you noticed whether, um, whether there has been kind of movement in terms of the sorts of candidates who are being successful in the jurisdictions where there's mobile voting now compared to prior? So the sample sizes are too small because it's still only these sort of very small groups. So it's not enough. The numbers aren't enough to change either who runs or how people then govern after they serve. But um, the good news is turnout on average has more than doubled. Um, since we started doing mobile voting in those jurisdictions for those demographics. So if that is a reflection, um, then the first piece is, will people vote if they can do so on their phone? And then if they if the answer is yes, they, they can and they will, will it be a moderating influence? I believe that, for, and almost by, by basic logic, if 60% of people are voting and the elected officials are following the will of that 60% because all they want to do is stay in office no matter what. That's their main priority. Um, then whatever 60% of the people want is, is, is the mainstream, right? And that, you know, almost by definition, no matter what it is. And so, look, my if, if you made a list of 100 different policies and my views on each, my views are not in the mainstream on every single issue. So if mobile voting happened and the mainstream view prevailed on everything, it wouldn't fully align with with everything I believe in. But I do think that at least if the majority of people are weighing in and politicians are responding uh, to those inputs and those stimuli, um, that I think they're going to then at least be incentivized to find consensus, get things done, get results. When it's small groups of ideological purists, um, the only the way to, to lose them is to do something that, that you know, it's actually to try to do something. And they say, oh, you shouldn't try to do anything. It's you're sufficiently impure. Um, you, you're out. And that happens both on the far left and the far right. Um, but if it's if it's a majority of people, it flips all of a sudden. It's like, OK, we have this problem, climate change, guns, immigration, healthcare, education, whatever it is. What have you actually accomplished about it? And I don't need this to be 100 percent lined up with my views. I need something to get done that seems reasonable. And so the only way to create those incentives is by massively increasing turnout, especially in primaries. Um, you only get politicians to act uh, accordingly and to do what needs to be done is to create the right political incentives. And the only way to get people to vote at those numbers is by doing so on their phones. Where are you with respect to getting this into New York City uh, election? Uh, tons of institutional resistance. Um, because look, the, the places that we've gone so far have been places where election officials who are innovative have had the authority to do so on their own jurisdiction rather than having to pass uh, a law or or a constitutional amendment. Um, the Board of Elections in New York is so historically inept and so historically corrupt that eventually I'm going to have to take on that fight. I know that. Um, but right now, uh, I'm either focusing on jurisdictions where uh, our partners, election officials, can automatically do it or... Uh, at least place where I think I have a decent shot right now of passing it. So, for example, Washington, D.C., a city council member recently introduced legislation that would allow all District of Columbia residents to vote on their phone. Um, I will very actively support that bill and, and, and put a lot of weight and money behind it. Um, but uh, as much as New York is my top priority, um, I, I think it's going to be a little lower down on the list of places in the timeline of adopting mobile voting. 
there's a couple of things I'd like to get your thoughts on, but one of them flowing right out of this conversation, um, you know, the, the incentivization um, system and model that polit- politicians operate under. Um, you have a pretty dismal view of politicians generally, it seems, and of politics. Uh, certainly that comes clear in your book. Um, I guess, you know, what are you know what contributes to that and in particular i guess what i'm thinking about is here in new york city in particular so like in this jurisdiction you know one of the things one of your uh it, you know uh, you know in your book um you you are trying to speak to to founders and startups and trying to say you know look you need to be uh very conscious of the particular jurisdictions you want to be working in and try to understand how the politics works there and what the politicians in the particular jurisdiction are, are um, responding to. So, you know, for like a philosophical startup who is looking to kind of disrupt um, um, the politics of New York city, but what's your, you know, you know, how do you see it? You know, what, What's wrong with New York City politics? I mean, that's a huge question, I realize. Right. No, and I I would say this, which is, I think what's wrong with New York City politics is is what's wrong with politics everywhere. And we have our share of corruption and all that. But I I, I don't think that, you know, we're much worse than everywhere else, certainly not worse than New Jersey. Um, So, um, but the the fundamental problem is um, we don't accept the human nature of people who serve in office. People who run for office, in my experience, this is what you were referring to in my book, are generally desperately insecure, often self-loathing people who cannot live without the validation of holding office. In my experience, these are people who have some sort of hole in their psyche where they need to be somebody to feel okay about themselves. And they don't generally have the talent to be somebody in a field like philosophy or in business or the arts or whatever profession uh, it is, um, but they do have the talent to run for office and win, which means once they achieve that, the worst outcome they could possibly imagine would be no longer having that. Because now that that need, that psychological hole is being filled, that affirmation is being provided, losing that is the worst thing that could ever happen to them. And so that means getting reelected at all costs, no matter what policy you're for or against or anything else. And we have a system of government right now where rather than acknowledging, okay, this is who runs for office, because the same we talked earlier about, you have to make sacrifices to live in New York City, you gotta make a lot of sacrifices to run for office, right? So if you're gonna put yourself through that, you're doing it because you ha- it's, it's meeting some very deep seated need for you, right? Rather than accepting it, we say, oh, yeah, we get that, but you should still do what's right. So take, take guns as an example. Um, you're a Republican congressman from Florida. And just to be clear, at this point, I'm an independent and hate both parties equally. So I'm, I'm, if, if you think I hate your favorite party, I, I do. Um, <laughs> uh, but you're a Republican congressman from Florida. Um, there's a shooting at a Walmart or a church or wherever it is. And you know intellectually that it's crazy that someone can walk into a store and walk out with an AK-47, right? Um, but turn out in your primary is 12%. The district is gerrymandered. It's the only election that matters is the primary. Um, NRA members are half of that 12%. If you vote for an assault weapons ban, your career is over. And it's not just that, like, oh, how will I pay the mortgage? 
It's, you know, how will I meet that psychological need that I have for validation, for affirmation? Because I don't really have the talent to get it in any other place, right? And so as a result, even though you know intellectually that AK-47 should be more regulated than they are right now, it doesn't matter because if the alternative is losing your seat, you're not going to do it, right? So we basically say human nature of politicians is what I just described, but they should do the right thing anyway. And guess how often that happens? Pretty much never. Um, and so, so fundamentally, if you want to disrupt politics, I think the first thing is you have to understand the human nature of someone who runs for office. I think you have to accept this is what is going to govern their actions. This is what is going to govern their decisions. And every campaign that we run, you know, still to today, where we're trying to legalize a particular kind of new technology or stop something or whatever it is, is a psychological exercise. We really say to ourselves, okay, here's the politician or a group of politicians in charge that we need. What do they fear most that will knock them out of office or do they need most to stay in office? If they believe that we can either knock them out of office or keep them in office, they're going to do what we want. If they don't think we can impact either of those two things, they're going to ignore us because we don't really matter. Um, and so if you're looking to disrupt politics, you've got to understand the nature of who runs for office. You've got to accept it. And then if you want them to do what you want them to do, you've got to shape whatever you need to be in their political interest. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. Now, if mobile voting ever succeeds and all of a sudden turnout is exponentially higher, then maybe that goes away to a certain extent because their interest and their, and sort of the norm and the mainstream start to align a little more. Um, but right now, they're totally unaligned. And so I think if you can't grasp your head around that or accept that, it, it is impossible to achieve anything meaningful in government politics. Today. So that that the idea of, of if we're going to have this sort of governmental system of representative democracy, we have to have a fully or, or much more engaged citizenry. <laughs> there has to be much more yeah. to kind of push the politicians in uh, directions which is more palatable to more people. I'm not sure if it was uh, on your podcast. I, I just I recently I was listening and it um, somebody, I thought it was a guest, said something about uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, um, who many would view kind of as a uh, in a very kind of moral light as a politician, that he said, you're going to have to force me to do the right thing. Um, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not going to do it unless you make me do it, unless the voters, in a sense, kind of push him in that direction. Um, and uh, that seems to be kind of like what you're saying. So they're, yeah, they're by the way, he's, he's the best it gets, right? He had real political courage and real brilliance and still, you know, Acknowledge that effectively every every policy output is the result of a political effort. So if if, if that's FDR, imagine your average city council member. All right, um, I I guess I want to finish up here. Um, you your, your work with startups. You often put it in terms of trying to fight regulations um, that are kind of in place that make it difficult for these startups to really get off the ground. Yeah. Um, regulations, as I kind of beginning, you know, we talked about kind of normative truths and, and the norms and the rules and the principles by which we live. The purpose of them is to regulate our lives, you know, to, to, you know, to shape our behavior. We often think about regulations in kind of an, in an economic sense, you know, business regulations, 
commercial regulations, but that is so much of kind of our social lives now. Maybe you could say something about how you how you assess regulations, what makes for good regulations, what makes for bad regulations. And if you'd like, I'd invite you also to speak about something you mentioned in your book, um, your work with the Rockefeller Foundation, um, which uh, you yeah. said as a, as a potential promising um, uh, venue for um, collaborative work on, yeah. on constructive yeah. regulation. Absolutely. So look, fundamentally, Regulation is neither inherently good nor inherently bad, right? You know, anyone who either says, oh, everything has to be regulated or nothing should be regulated, you know, I don't think they really know what they're talking about. Um, so the question is, what does a good regulation look like? And a good regulation says um, the overriding interest of the average citizen is X. And in order to ensure that that interest is met as much as possible, we are going to impose these restrictions upon businesses or entities or whoever it is engaging in these activities, right? So uh, we need a banking system, right? People need to be able to get cash, put their their paycheck somewhere, borrow money. Um, But at the same, so if you had a banking system that was so heavily regulated that it was not profitable for anyone to operate a bank, it would do more harm than good because even if you believe that all bankers are evil, people still need some place to put their money and to get their money from, right? So at the same time, though, banks, if left to their own devices, um, seek to maximize profit as much as they possibly can, which means oftentimes screwing over their customers, right, and the consumers. And so you seek to protect consumers um, while still allowing the underlying function itself to actually exist. And then it's just a question of the right balance, right? And when the laws are, the regulations are written, and when the laws are written to try to find the right balance to allow an activity that should be legal to exist, um, even to flourish, but not in a way that disadvantages, you know, your average citizen, that's generally good regulation. When a regulation is written to protect um, a particular special interest, a particular business, a particular entity, whatever it is, and to benefit them at the expense of everyone else, that's a bad regulation, right? It, in, in most of the stuff that I work on, you know, I invest in, as a venture capitalist, I invest in, in early stage technology startups. And then we go through the process of usually trying to legalize whatever new ideas that they have. Um, and typically speaking, uh, whatever it is, there's no existing regulation that speaks to it because uh, if the regulator... <laughs> No one, no one knew it was going to exist until these people invented it, right? And so, you know, it, it's a question of really what what is a regulation that allows this new type of innovation to exist and to compete in the marketplace? Um, and, and you know, if you look at use Uber, sort of, Uber is always the prime example of this, and it's one that I happen to do. Um, the taxi industry wasn't saying, "Oh, this would be a better system of governance for." transportation, they were saying, we don't want competition from these guys to just make up a bunch of rules that prohibit them from operating. And we were able to break through that and kind of break that cartel and and win. Um, And so um, that's an example of bad regulation. But but it's not that there should be no regulation. So take take cryptocurrency as an example. I'm I'm an investor in in several cryptocurrency exchanges like Coinbase. Um, I want crypto regulation because I can't 
I can't invest in and build a billion dollar company if it's the total wild west, right? We need guardrails, we need rules, we need you know consumer protection. Um, so most of the time when you're trying to create a regulatory framework for a new technology, whether it's artificial intelligence, drones, esports, autonomous cars, you know, whatever it is, it's trying to figure out what will keep people safe, protected, keep their interests uh, in mind, while at the same time allowing whatever the underlying activity is to take place, because if there wasn't a demand for it, it, it wouldn't exist in the first place, right? So it's it's really meeting the the need that what the market is is finding through um, consumers and what uh, protecting sort of those same consumers in ways um, that you know are, are reasonable. So that's it in a big picture. Uh, obviously, then the fight over every specific regulation gets into one of ideology, one of particular interests, kind of competing to advantage themselves uh, ahead of others. Uh, and politics. And like I said before, uh, if you want a regulator or more importantly, the politician who appoints the regulator, do what you want, you've got to figure out how to frame the issue in terms of their political interest. And uh, anything on the Rockefeller Foundation? Yeah, or- sure. So, sorry. Yeah. So uh, the Rockefeller Foundation did something really smart uh, a couple of years ago, which was they said, look, we're seeing this constant trend of cities and technology companies at odds with each other. And, and Uber's, again, always the prime example, but Airbnb, there are lots of them. And in reality, technology can do so much to make cities better, to make them operate better, make them more efficient, provide better services, everything else. Um, this ought to be a good relationship. And yeah, there are going to be differences of opinion as to how any particular thing should work. But but there are ways to resolve those without resulting in you know massive multi-million dollar political campaigns where someone like me is, is beating the crap out of someone like Bill de Blasio on TV, calling him corrupt. And so what Rockefeller did was they uh, they have this beautiful campus in Bellagio, Italy on Lake Como, and they invited uh, each year about a dozen mayors from all over the world and a dozen technology startups and said, hey, come talk to each other. And one, you're going to find that you actually have a lot more in common than you think. And two, um, develop systems by which you can deal with each other in ways that are not confrontational because you're wasting all of this time and opportunity that, that could be used for you, technology company, to actually make your business better and for you, mayor, to make your city better. And so it was a really wise thing. Uh, they did it a couple of times. It was called City Exchange. Uh, hasn't happened in the last couple of years, uh, but I would love to see them do it again. Yeah, it sounds like a, a great idea. And I, I- Definitely going to speak to my students, my business ethics uh, students, because we talk about regulations and the general focus often seems to be on businesses. They need to follow regulations. Businesses need to be better. Um, But the government also has to create regulations which are suitable to the society itself. And and the more collaboration there is, the more communication seems to be. It's a a mutual endeavor. So – um, listen, Bradley Tusk, thank you so much uh, for this. Uh, this is yeah, thank a pleasure. You for having um, me. This was, this was fun. Uh, I, don't, I don't usually get to sort of delve into this level of uh, of introspection and, and kind of abstractual thought. Uh, so, so this was great. I really appreciate it. And thank you to the audience for listening. All right. Thank you. So there's my conversation with Bradley Tusk. I found it thought-provoking, full of a lot of different ideas that are worth 
wrestling with and uh, quite enjoyable. And I hope that you found it so as well. Uh, I have a couple of uh, editorial thoughts that I want to now tack on. One concerns the comment uh, attributed to FDR that I passed along about make me do the right thing. That is something that I had heard on a podcast the night before I was recording this conversation. And having subsequently gone to the interweb, uh, it would seem that that story is apocryphal. And while I do not want to be a purveyor of philosophical noise that would distract us uh, from talking about the sorts of things that we were talking about in this conversation, uh, I will leave it to you to decide whether uh, this has really any bearing on the claims that Bradley is making about the nature of the kind of the political personality, the kind of person who goes into politics. Thinking more about that personality, uh, it what came to mind was a remark attributed to Bradley uh, during the recent mayoral campaign. Something that uh, supposedly he said off the record was that he took Andrew Yang to be an empty vessel, and that was part of what made him attractive. Uh, Bradley was to some degree criticized for this. Um, I personally did not find it uh, in that significant of a comment, and so I didn't bother asking him about it. But subsequently, doing the, you know, while I was doing this editing here, it, it, it came to mind that if his picture of the nature of the political personality, that they want to stay in power, they want the validation, and if we want them to be pursuing policies that are more representative of a wider swath of the electorate, then you need to get that wider swath of the electorate actually active. They'll only be responsive if these people are going to be voting. But this seems to suggest that maybe politicians are by their very nature empty vessels. It isn't their views. It isn't their vision so much that they are trying to bring into reality. It is the vision of those who will enable them to stay in a position to bring any vision into reality. So with that thought, um, we'll leave it off for this episode. Uh, again, I hope that you enjoyed it. I would very much like to hear your thoughts, your feedback. You can reach out to me uh, at jsbeal at philosophy.nyc. You can follow me on Twitter um, at jsbeal, as well as the Gotham Philosophical Society at philosophy.nyc. Um, and I hope you'll be listening to the next episode. Take care.